Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is, is drayage just drayage with my friend Brian Kempesty. Brian is the founder of a company called Port X Logistics, and they specialize in drayage. They do drayage for every port in the U.S. and Canada, which is rare. Usually when you talk to drayage companies, they only serve a couple ports, mostly with their own trucks. And while most drayage companies are kind of lower tech, these guys are high tech. In fact, they can track your container when it's still at sea. So they are looking at taking what has traditionally been a weak link in the supply chain, that's drayage, and make it the strongest link. So drayage is not just drayage when you work with the fellows from PortX. So take a listen. I think you'll be super impressed with what Brian and his team are doing. But before we get to the podcast, I want to tell you about my friends at Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K logistics.com. If you're a small parcel shipper, you can save 40% with Tusk. And the way you can save 40% is Tusk has a great technology and they've connected a whole bunch of regional small parcel carriers. These are carriers that have been in business for a long time and they're excellent service, better than the big guys in their region. But you could never use them because they were just regional. Tusk has connected these guys into a national network. You can save 40% and have better service. And in addition, you get Tusk's technology, which is top-notch, plus you get Tusk, uh, their customer support. Overall, you can't lose. You get better service than you're going to get from the big guys, and you get better technology from the big guys, and the service, the delivery time is better than the big guys. 40% savings. Do it. TuskLogistics.com. And right at the top, it says, get started. Click on that button and get started and save 40%. So how's it going, Brian? Very good. Pleasure to uh, be on the show today from Livingston, Montana. Well, I'm in Livingston County, Michigan, so we're we're practically neighbors. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, Brian, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Sure. My name is Brian Kempesty. I'm the founder of Portex Logistics. We specialize in drayage, transloading, and trucking. And coming to you from uh, just outside Bozeman, Montana, in Livingston, which is the gateway to Yellowstone National Park. Very nice. Very nice. Well, we'll get to that in a minute because I want to know more how you end up. All of us want to know how we end up living in Bozeman. So, <laughs> and and those of you who are listening in Texas and Georgia, we can't all live there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, what does Port X do? Well, we specialize in expediting containerized cargo to and from all ports in the U.S. and Canada. We've got offices across the United States, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, the Gulf. And then we have offices in Canada as well, in Toronto and Vancouver to help with drayage and transload solutions north of the border. Nice, nice. Now, so when you say you're expediting, I'm assuming you do regular container moves too, right? Yeah, we do a lot of uh, regional drayage, whether it be from you know, Oakland to Reno or Oakland to Sacramento or things that come into the Denver rail ramp. So that might be half of our volume, but we're really known as the gold standard in drayage, transloading and trucking. We often like to say drayage, transloading and trucking 2,000 miles in two days. Nice. So I'm, I'm, I told you I was going to bug you with some definitions. What is drayage and then what is transloading? So drayage is the movement of containerized cargo generally short distances, but there can also be long-haul drayage. For example, something comes into New Jersey, it needs to go to a production facility in Ohio, and maybe you'll do a 500-mile dray. But it's the movement over the road of containerized cargo. And we're predominantly in the international containers, which is 20 and 40s and some 45s. And then there's also drayage of 53-foot domestic intermodal boxes um, that could go to and from the rail ramps. So that's that containerized containerized freight, which by the way, guys, we would not have the world we have without containerized freight. It is, I just said it the other day, it is the foundation of our supply chains. And you could even go one step further. It's the foundation that our lives are built on right now. (laughs) Everything you're looking at in your house right now or driving it probably came in a container. 
Yeah. And if you need more time definite solutions, right, to your containerized cargo, as we were talking before the show, you don't need it to show up just whenever it shows up. You need a little bit of certainty as to when it's going to get there. And that is what, you know, that relates to the transloading of the product, right? If you've got production cargo coming into LA and it happens to be going to Nashville and you know that you're going to be short on your, your production parts, do you want to risk that going on a rail, a rail interchange and local delivery? Or do we want to recover that cargo and ensure it's delivered that 2,000 miles in just two days? So what is transloading? It's taking the cargo out of, in our case, out of a international you know, 20 or 40 foot container. It could be palletized or it could be loose. If it's it's loose, we generally palletize it and then loading out the over the road trailer. And one of our real dif- differentiators is we don't get it drayed and then like a day later transload it and then a day later the over the road truck picks it up. This stuff all happens simultaneously. Containers in door one, we pull the pallet out of the container, put it to the trailer in door two, the driver goes to, to final destination with complete GPS tracking. Yeah, and some of the stuff that gets into containers is not necessarily pelletized, so it has to be put on pallets and wrapped sometimes, right? Yep. In a lot of your Asia, and it might not be fair to say just Asia in general, but consumer goods, right? Consumer goods, you know, could be blenders and coffee makers and toys and things like that generally are coming in loose and more of your production cargo that might be going to an automotive or industrial facility is generally more palletized. And, you know, we even understand the trade lanes of ocean freight and the trade lanes that the rails run. So we've got a pretty good indication. If something came through Norfolk and rode Norfolk Southern to Chicago, and then they said, hey, well, we need that to go up to Wisconsin, but it needs to be delivered on a flatbed. I can tell you with almost 100% certainty that that cargo is palletized because I know where it came from. You know, and that's just another differentiator as professionals in the drayage and transloading space. You know, we really understand the world economy, where the freight's coming from, and what to expect when we're recovering that freight. Yep, yep. And so when we talk about this containerized freight, it's got put in a container somewhere, let's just say in Europe or Asia, and they load that container most cases some if it's you said the stuff that's loose they they loaded it to optimize space in that container to save money on that so because so then it gets to the u.s well it's not optimized for over the road transportation that's where you guys come in and guys I've, i've said this before on my podcast my dad used to say He's long past, but my dad used to say that the worst job he ever had was unloading boxcars. What we used to do before we had containerized freight, which is late 50s, early 60s, was we would load these boats with stuff and then unload the boats. And we had all this loading and unloading. It was dangerous work at the ports. Now we have containerized freight and companies like yours can move it over the road for us or take it to railheads. And if it goes by rail, it's going somewhere. And again, it's going to be drayed again, probably by a company like yours. And before we hit record, we were talking, well, we'll get, we'll get to this in just a minute. So the name of the topic is, is drayage, just drayage, and we'll get to that. But first, tell me a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started this company. And, and I'll also ask and think about this is, why did you start this company? What hole did you see in the market? Well, I started, I grew up on a dairy farm in Western New York, about an hour south of Buffalo. And, you know, I learned how to work. You know, you, you, you grow up on a dairy farm, you know, you, you learn how to grind it out, work every day. I ended up going to Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. You know, I was able with, with a prize cow, I actually paid for my first year at Canisius College. And then I was 19 and I was like, we don't have a lot of money and I need a job. So I went to the internship office as a sophomore. I was like, can you find me a paid internship? And they kind of laughed me off and was like, well, call this guy. Well, this guy was a, a mentor of mine. His name was Dale. I started doing sales for him. He was a director of sales for a Canadian freight brokerage. And this was 1995, 1996. And this was before you know Netscape and AOL were just coming. So we were pretty, you know... <laughs> 
pretty you know low low tech grinded out and i had this book called the north american export pages and i just called as many people out of the north american export pages as i could faxed them our material you know we helped grow that business pretty significantly i stayed in college so i worked eight to five i went to school from six to nine four nights a week when i graduated i i went to work for two different trucking companies i learned the asset side of the business and then at 23 with Dale, my mentor there, we started um, a company in Buffalo and Toronto that was called Cornerstone Logistics. And we predominantly did cross-border LTL and truckload, but that's where I kind of cut my teeth in drayage, transloading, and trucking for a, uh, a major U.S. manufacturer that called them. was like, I got this container in Halifax, and if I don't get it Monday, production's going down. Can you figure it out? And of course, we said, yes, we're going to get it figured out. We traded in bond, transloaded it in bond, made sure it got to the border, border cleared. It delivered on Monday. And that was the beginning of, you know, my career specializing in drays, transloading and trucking. Yeah. How far away is Buffalo uh, to uh, Toronto? About 90 minutes. Okay. So I, I know Buffalo gets a lot of uh, the import-export business out there. I'm in Detroit area. We obviously, we do a lot too. Uh, Mars is... Um, I think that border, we, we, we ignore it, but it's pretty important. And, and most of oh, the population of Canada is still it, within a very tight area there um, between <laughs> Toronto and Toronto and Windsor. <laughs> yeah. And, and most of them are within a couple hours of the U.S. border. Yes, so yes. It's a big, big trading partner. Yeah. Yeah. Very important. And by the way, being in automotive, I can tell you this, there's assembly plants over the border, but also so many suppliers, but also without all of the Canadian engineers and techs and Detroit shuts down pretty darn quick. So we, we good partner. But um, so what was after, what was after that? What was after your company there? So, so I ended up selling that company and um, I did some, some consulting work, some 1099 work and you know, they had another transaction at that company. And some of the leadership team that came with me to start PortX were like, we know there's a better way. I mean, we were founded on four principles at PortX, culture, service, tech, and trucks. We started October 2nd of 2017. We knew what we wanted to do. One of our partners, Adam, had said, why are we waiting for these people to email us and ask them questions? Why can't we just give them daily updates with screenshots as to where their stuff is? So that proactive communication was part of it, working with our, our technology provider, Turvo, as well as other providers like OpenTrack, CargoSnap to, to really help create this, you know, we called it multimodal, you know, I call it a transportation operating system because really, you know, you're housing all of this different data in there. And we knew we wanted trucks too. So we put culture, service, tech, and trucks on the board. We knew there was a better way. You know, we're all a bunch of grinders and hard workers. I'm actually, I'm 46 turning 47 and I'm the, I'm the old man in the organization. So I've been doing it. I started when I was 19, so I've been doing it for a long time. But we have a, a group of really hardworking, innovative leaders, and we've done a great job training. We've got an awesome training program and training manual. And we just think we're developing the best system in drayage, transloading, and trucking in the United States. So... Drayage has a unique kind of vehicle. Talk about that. How many of those do you have? And then talk about your other trucks. So almost all of our trucks are related um, to Drayage. I mean, at least 300 of the 350 are related to the Drayage marketplace. We do have some pieces of specialized equipment, like some, you know, step decks or double drops or RGNs when you need some really big stuff. Like, for example, we're set up with the Port of Virginia. So if we need a transload done and in Virginia or Houston, we can send send in a double drop and the stevedoring company loads it right onto the flatbed. So, you know, we, we do a little bit of that work. Owning some of our own chassis is, is very advantageous as well because through the pandemic, whether it was Chicago or Memphis or certain ports, if you didn't have access to some chassis, it was, you know, potentially quite problematic. So, I'm look, thinking about a drayage truck. That's usually a, just a truck that is a chassis. It doesn't have the whole trailer on the back. So what is that's the chassis I'm thinking of. What a, When you say chassis, what are you talking about? The chassis that are built for the, whether it be the international containerized cargo or the domestic containerized cargo, you know, usually they're 20 or 40 foot chassis on the, the international or 53 foot chassis on the domestic. And, and several years ago, when we were starting our chassis fleet, 
we tried to get a lot of 20 and 40 sliders. So for example, if I would go return an empty 20 at the Port of Oakland and I have to pick up a 40, I don't have to go swap that chassis out. I can just extend that to a 40-foot chassis, grab another container and go. And when you say 40, you don't mean a 40-ounce beer. You mean that 40-foot 40, 40 I mean a 40-foot chassis, yeah. <laughs> So you guys are not going to be fooled if it came on if it came in a box over the ocean. You are not going to be fooled. You're going to have the right equipment. That's a lot of assets for a company that started in 2017. You guys have grown like a weed. Yeah, you know we've made some strategic partnerships, which has uh, you know really helped us out and grow that market. But I think a lot of it is predicated on the level of service that we're providing and the level of visibility. Because once people start dealing with us and they make us an integral part of the supply chain and not an afterthought, the level of service and the level of visibility is exponentially better than what they had before. And, and you know, we like to say we're the easy button for it. If you want some certainty in your deliveries, you know, you need all of those things managed. And we mentioned open track earlier. Us having the ability to track cargo all the way from India, China, Europe, and get that 10 to 20 days advance notice. We have all the resources put in place from drivers to chassis to trucks to warehouse space to yard space. And we talked earlier about pallets, right? During the pandemic, people ran out of pallets. So if you got 100 transloads in a week and we got a two-week lead notice as to when the containers are coming in, we can make sure we get those pallets sourced. Yeah, you guys picked a vertical. A space and you just doubled down on it. And I say it all the time on my podcast. I say it to a lot of young people too, is don't don't dabble. Don't be superficial. Figure something out. If you're going to do retail, understand the entire retail supply chain and be a flat out expert in it. Not just a guy who gets a truck because let's face it, tech does more and more for us every day when it comes to getting trucks. You don't want to find yourself on the outside looking in. <laughs> well, and like you said, you know, I go to so many companies' websites and they do white glove delivery and they do pick and pack and they do overdimensional and they do dry van and they do air freight and ocean freight. It's like, I mean, there's no way. I mean, maybe there's a huge, you know, the, big, the biggest there. dogs can do it, but no one else can. It's, it's really hard to say that you can do all that stuff. By the way, um, before I was doing the podcast, I was doing a lot of sales training, digital marketing, that kind of stuff. I also advise shippers on selecting 3PLs. And a lot of companies I would talk to would say, if it move, if it needs to be moved, we can move it. doesn't matter. We do everything. And what they usually meant by that is, I have a friend in another company who <laughs> works yeah. with me. And that was always the sales guy motto is, we are everything to everyone. And the Reality is when you say you're everything to everyone, you're probably no one to everyone. <laughs> you need to you need to pick that niche. And by the way, the niche you picked isn't exactly tiny. <laughs> no, it's it's billions of dollars. We have so much runway and so much opportunity. And uh, early on in the development of Portex Logistics, we moved one LTL shipment. We had a claim, and that was the last one. We're like, if we can't do it perfect, we don't want to do it at all. So, you know, that's kind of our motto. Let's stick to our niche. Let's stick to what we know, what we know that we can do nearly perfectly. Obviously, it's transportation. So there's things that go wrong. But as long as I'm telling you, Joe, this is going to go wrong because of X, Y, and Z, there's no empty slots for your return. The marketplace is out of pallets, whatever it is, we're trying to at least be proactive on that communication. Yep. So, you started this in 2017. Why did you pick this niche? What hole did you see in the market? Technology was one glaring issue that there was no real visibility tool for containerized cargo. And then for us to do those other integrations that we talked about to track the ocean freight on our customer's behalf, to track the rail on our customer's behalf, to integrate with Cargo Snap to automatically get pictures. Nobody had it built out. And it was those my, are all separate silos, all separate silos. And I had the vision that there is no national drayage transloading and trucking provider. And we wanted to be the gold standard in that space. It was very fragmented, very owner operator heavy. And, and we just knew we're obviously not the cheapest guys in the marketplace, but we knew we could be the best guys in the marketplace. 
Yep. And by the way, for those who, every once in a while I use these terms, I'm not so sure everyone understands what I mean, but when you talk about silos, you think about it like a grain silo. It just, it's, it has all the information, all it's, it's self-contained. And the problem is silos don't communicate. When we say silos that we're kind of describing either functional areas or separate companies that just don't connect, they don't communicate. And by the way, I happen to know the guys at Turbo very well. Their whole goal in life was we are going to create something that connects all these disconnected silos in a in a way that's easy and fast. Yeah. Here's a great example, Joe. This happened a couple weeks ago. Container comes into the port of Houston. Why that was the ocean routing, I don't know. But we did the dray. We got it out Friday night. We transloaded it Saturday morning. And it was going to a, a production site. When I say a production site, they were building this facility. So there's engineers involved, there's salespeople involved, there's people in Europe involved, and we have a tracking link for every single shipment that can be shared with all parties of the supply chain. From Saturday morning to Sunday afternoon, they clicked that that link 76 times, different members of the supply chain. So if you had 76 emails to you, 76 responses, 76 thank yous, or 76 phone calls, you wouldn't have gotten anything done on the weekend. Right. Right. And yeah, the, before in the past, you wouldn't have, you might have sent an email, but no one would answer it until Monday morning. Yeah. <laughs> and <clears throat> it's, it's using tech for the stuff the tech should be able to do rather than sharing that. So you do able to send them a link. Is that on Turbo? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And again, the Turbo is built to connect to all these other systems. So guys, I've said this a few times in my podcast, but it's the way modern tech is developed. They don't, Turbo is a standalone. They can do a a lot of great functions. You know, they could be your TMS. It could be a lot of different things for your company. But what they are really good at beyond that is connecting to all these other systems. And you don't know until it's there that there's another app that you want to connect to. Not so long ago, we didn't have all these visibility apps. Now we want to connect to them. Before we hit record today, I was talking to you about Tomorrow IO. It's a weather app. We're all going to, it's a weather platform. We're all going to connect with that in our TMS or our systems. Turbo is built in a way that they integrate like that and it makes life easy. Well, and I think one of the fallacies out there in the marketplace with tech driven companies, right? Well, if I just get this one piece of technology, it's the silver bullet, it's going to cure everything. But without all those integrations to gather the data and then to be able to send the data to customers and reporting and all the different tools that are available, off the shelf, it doesn't, no system is going to do what you need it to. It took five years to make this happen. I'll tell you, when I saw my first TMS, good TMS, I saw some substandard TMS early on. When I saw the first good TMS, I remember going, oh my God, this changes everything. This is the only tool you need. <laughs> and I remember I remember meeting with my customers and they were, Brian, they looked at me like I was Steve Jobs. I'm sure you had similar experiences. Yeah. They're looking at me like I'm Steve Jobs. I'm like, yeah, that's right, I am. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I have solved all transportation problems with this TMS. And I stood up and took a bow. And then, <laughs> and then before long, you realize... I need another field in that. I need to connect to this. And by the way, within a year or so, I realized a TMS was a fantastic advancement, but so much better when you open your mind to all the things that it can connect to. And it's a living, breathing platform that more and more things become available in the way that you communicate you know, between different services or with your client. Like there's so many things that are that are changing and that's why we, we think we do a great job at it. Tom uh, Zeiss, he's our CIO. That's his primary job is to make sure integrations with providers, customer adoption, vendor adoption, training. You know, a lot of I've seen so many people spend millions of dollars on software. They get it installed. They do almost zero implementation. And the company uses like 10% of its capabilities. Yes, yes. By the way, we were talking about Jeff D'Angelo before we hit record. And Jeff is one of the founders of Turbo and still the biggest advocate. He's no longer working at Turbo, but he still has an interest in it. And he is their biggest fan. 
And he always says, when I go out and see customers using probably more than 10%, but not using it to its full capability. And by the way, I've talked to the guys from JBF Consulting on my podcast before. JBF, great company. They help the biggest shippers select software and also implement it. But what they also do is make sure they continue until they're getting all of the juice out of that lemon. Exactly. And so often we implement, you go, Whoa, that was that was brutal. We got everyone trained, everybody onboarded. Hallelujah, let's get back to our regular job. And you're using 60 or 70% of its capability. Well, get this too. This is one other thing that we developed over the last year and a half. So if you've got 15, 20 containers coming on a boat from Europe and you send us a pre-alert, a spreadsheet, a master bill of lading, we can ingest that data, make the delivery orders on the customer's behalf. The customer does zero data entry and we get the orders 15 days prior to port arrival. So you can do your job. And by the way, especially during the pandemic, but probably always, we don't get enough notice about when is that when is that stuff going to be ready to pick up? So we can't talk to our Dre guy. And I don't think that happens when you start working with uh, Portex. They're going to get you on the right track. So before I forget, we came up with this very clever title. That's just how we are. So we called this title, Is Dreage Just Dreage? What do you mean by that? You're not just picking Bob, the owner-operator, after your cargo has been cleared to say, hey, Bob, go get this. This is That's the way it was done in the 90s, right? So, you know, we think that there's just so much more to it now. Being an integral part of the supply chain, whether that's with the BCO or an NVOCC, and we like to say managing the shipments. So we're tracking it across the water. We're notifying of any holds. We're paying TMF or Pure Pass on your behalf immediately through the system, tracking it through transload or on the rail, and then GPS tracking to final delivery. And one of the things that we do that I don't think anybody else is bold enough to do, if you give us an order, whether that's a spreadsheet, whether that's a master bill, whether that's a delivery order, and we have it five days prior to vessel arrival, we provide a no demurrage guarantee. So people that got whacked with demurrage in 20, 21, and 22, you know, that's a big benefit because people have paid tens of millions of dollars in, in ancillary fees. Please explain what demurrage and detention are and why it was such a big deal during the pandemic. So in my, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you my definition. So demurrage is when something is unloaded and available at the port. Generally, you get five free days at the port to have that, that container recovered in off-port property. Five days is kind of the average. We like to get it as, as quickly as possible. But as it goes past that fifth day, it could be $150 a day. And then your your per day or per day charge continues to escalate. So maybe it's $150 for the first two days, and then it becomes $200 and then $250. So that's the demurrage charge. When I think of detention, I think of rail detention. When something comes into a rail ramp, in order to pick it up, you need to get the last free day from the steamship line. And then you can get a pickup number and get in there and get that picked up. Usually at a rail ramp, you're only getting one to two days free. A lot of them have gone back to one free day. And, you know, how the new legislation coming out with people not being able to charge when terminals or ramps are closed is going to be interesting. But think about this. If something gets to Denver tonight at 1130 p.m., I'm sorry, Friday night, we'll say at 1130 p.m., the ramp's not open Saturday or Sunday and you pick it up Monday, you still are paying an attention charge even though the ramp wasn't available for you. So that's what I think of as detention. And then the per diem charges... In general, you're going to get, say, 10 free days with that container out of the port. So if you take it to a big fulfillment center... And that's charged by the steamship company, right? Correct, because they want their container back as quickly as possible. So generally, you know, after 10 days, if you don't have that container unloaded and returned back to the port, you, meaning the BCO, is going to end up paying that per diem charge. So that's another thing that these... Technology integrations help us with, you know, we can do yard checks on our customer's behalf. We can send reports of, you know, hey, uh, 
Mr. Blender Company, you've got 100 containers of them in there. 90 of them are going to be going into per diem on Monday. You better get them unloaded. So we can just help be, you know, help them manage those shipments to get it done. So what do you mean by BCO? What does that mean? Beneficial cargo owner. So that could be automotive, you know, if Amazon buys product direct, you know, Kohl's, any, any retailers. So beneficial cargo owner. And then our other customers, which we do a lot with, is we work with NVOCCs or freight forwarders, non-vessel operating common carriers. And, you know, we like to really partner with them. Obviously, we'll do last minute shipments. They need things expedited. They need things transloaded. But we like to partner with them on accounts, like I said earlier, to be an integral part of that supply chain, managing that freight, not the afterthought guy. Yeah. And so getting back to it, when I ask the question, is drayage just drayage? It, it, traditionally, it has been. You had these drayage guys who were just a, a little piece of the supply chain. And the problem with that is we always had these handoffs. And that's not really my 3PL. That's just my drayage guy. He's separate from my 3PL. Or however we treated it. And by the way, this happens all the time in our business is anything, anytime you kind of um, ignore an area, it's it gets it's not as effective or as efficient as you want it to be. And so what you're saying is we will do the drayage. We will also take it to a warehouse. We will also palletize it if necessary. We will put it on a train. We will put it on a truck. We will deliver it. And in addition, so that's the downstream, we'll look upstream and tell you when it, where is it at and when is it going to, when is it going to clear customs? When can it be picked up and moved? And Guys, we learned during the pandemic that we had a real problem moving stuff through the ports. And by the way, the detention and demerge, we we are going to have some changes on the rules from from the government, which I think we all agree probably necessary. We like those guardrails. This helps this helps our trade. But we also have to realize that if you're a port, you're not a storage facility. You can't hold people's stuff. You don't want to hold people's stuff. You're like an Amazon fulfillment center. It's not for storage. It's for it's for distribution. Yeah, yeah. And instead of just drayage, well, this was a meeting I had in Nashville a couple of weeks ago. One of my colleagues was like, he's like, you aren't the gold standard for drayage, transloading and trucking. You actually help manage the shipments. So I've kind of picked that up and say we like to we manage the domestic portion of your containerized cargo to ensure that it's delivered in a timely manner. Yeah, and I can say this. I spent much of my career in automotive, and I worked with three PLs. And then I then I was at a three PL. And what I realized is when I was a sh- when I was in the shipper shoes, I just didn't want to have to learn their business. I didn't. It was their job. I don't want to have to figure this out. I want a complete solution. Don't make me don't make me become an expert in a whole bunch of stuff I don't understand. Yeah, and guys, getting back to the whole idea of silos. If you're in trucking, we have over-the-road trucking is the big dog, obviously. But we do have rail. We do have the ports. We do have drayage. We do have specialized equipment that's necessary. You can call people at virtually any brokerage and they'll say, oh, yeah, we can do that for you. That's 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 their job is to say, we can do that for you and we will add a carrier to our network and figure it out and, and we will learn on your dime over the next few days. <laughs> and I've always said to shippers that I advise, don't train them. It's, it's their job to be, pick an expert. Don't pick somebody who's learning on your money. Yeah. Well, and, and the title is Drayage Just Drayage, right? You talk about that production cargo going to a tier one automotive provider in Wisconsin and it's coming into LA Long Beach. Do you want a two day service or a four day service or a five day service? Because the prices are generally not apples to oranges, right? You really need to understand what you're getting as a consumer, whether it's a beneficial cargo owner or a freight forwarder, what are you getting for what you're paying for? Yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy. So I want to ask you, um, some questions. So we obviously don't have the same port congestion that we had during the pandemic. Thank God. But we also had a change. And I guess it's been gradual. We're moving stuff. 
more stuff is showing up on the East Coast. So we have warehouses, we have ports, we have trucking companies, drainage companies all on the West Coast that are traditionally picking that stuff up. But more and more of our stuff is showing up on the East Coast. How does this impact our industry? So I think there's a lot of things. I think the consumer goods, your cheaper stuff like toys and things like that, that are coming from Asia, they're going to utilize those West Coast ports because the margins are thin. But the production cargo, you need to diversify your supply chain. And whether that's a third in LA, a third in Houston, and a third in Savannah, and you separate that so you're not put in jail if something bad happens at one port or one terminal... And that could be a labor issue, which we're still dealing with on the West Coast. That could be a hurricane that happens in Houston. It's just wise to diversify that supply chain. And the other thing I see Savannah and Houston is, you know, being the two fastest growing ports and continuing. Where is the automotive industry? Where is the EV industry? Where are they making battery manufacturing plants? They're all in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Texas. So those routings internationally are going to make more sense than L.A. Long Beach with those facilities being right. built. Yeah, and I think we still have more people. We used to be 80% of the population lived east of the Mississippi. I don't think that's quite that high that anymore. People are moving west like yourself, but and they're moving south. But being an automotive guy, I can say, mm, yeah, we still have a ton of stuff here in Michigan. And we do get a lot of stuff from but it has to go by rail. But I can see more and more of it coming from the East Coast. And by the way, as we do more business, not in China, stuff is moving to India, it's moving to other countries. We're now starting, rather than just using the Panama Canal, they're using the Suez Canal more and more, right? As long as Evergreen doesn't get stuck in it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and that what he's, Brian's referencing is we had a we had a ship get stuck in the Suez Canal last year or the year before. Just one more of those that was adding insult to injury <laughs> during yeah, that time. Yeah. But I'll mention this also and you can get your two cents on it. We have two longshoremen's unions. So the West Coast has one longshoremen's union and then the East Coast has one. And from what I just talked to Peter Churchwell, he was saying, hey, you know, the East Coast seems to have less labor issues. And right now they're still kind of ongoing negotiations, I believe, on the West Coast. And it puts, it's potentially slowed down. So anybody who is a little worried says, I'll just move my stuff over to Savannah. And Houston, Savannah, Virginia, all those, New Jersey, New York, those are all part of the East Coast Union. It's different Longshoremen's Union. Usually when you hear a union, it's one across the whole country. Not so in this case. And the percentage of labor that is in the union is much different in the Gulf and the, the East Coast ports versus the West Coast ports. You know, for example, you know, Savannah, I think your crane operators need to be union, but your rubber tire gantry operators internally don't need to be. So there's just, you know, what is the percentage of labor? And I think the higher percentage of labor, the more obviously, you know, the union can control the narrative there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, guys, if I'm not lying about this. The average longshoreman makes well over 300 grand a year. <laughs> if you're ever thinking, you're telling your kid, go to school and become an entrepreneur like Brian or go go uh, <laughs> go go become a doctor so you can make 300 grand or <laughs> yeah. become a longshoreman. <laughs> I mean – I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I tell people, they're like, well, what should I go to school for? Well, if you don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, how about just don't go and just let's let's learn on the fly because you're going to learn way more coming to Port X in four years than you're going to learn hallelujah. paying for school. Yeah, hallelujah. So getting back to your you, – you guys have grown like a weed. We talked about technology. We got all that you bought – I say this usually – when somebody owns trucks, they don't usually talk a ton about technology. You talk a lot about technology, but you also have these own trucks. You, Where's your team located? Are you, is your team remote or do you guys have offices across the no, country? No, we have, we have offices across the country. So Toronto and Vancouver and Canada, Oakland, LA, Denver, looking at opening in Houston very soon, Kansas City, Memphis, Chicago, Savannah, and then uh, in New York is our brokerage headquarters. And so do you, you have a lot of 
trucks? Where are your trucks located? Are those terminals or are those offices? Or are they a little of both? <laughs> a little, of, a little of both, you know, and and really, probably. So we do the regional drayage, obviously, and that's our own trucks for the most part. But in I, a, a normal scenario is if something is coming into Savannah, a Portax truck is bringing it back to a Portax warehouse with a Portax yard. And then we're transloading that to an over-the-road partner who is completely vetted through uh, multiple sources. And the drivers are all GPS tracked. That's rules of engagement for PortX. So when you come to pick up, you have your pickup number. You swipe right. That starts the shipment. Your geofence to delivery. When you get there, you take a picture of the POD, and it's done. So, you know, another thing, you know, handling multiple modes Billing is very difficult for a lot of customers. We say you get a POD within 24 hours and an invoice within 48 hours. That's the longest that we want it to take because some people are waiting multiple weeks just to gather up their paperwork. Yeah. By the way, I heard this a few months ago, a, a very big shipper that you would all recognize and a very big retailer that you would all recognize the name. There's a problem they had and the the... The retailer doesn't want to pay for that shipment because the CPG can't provide POD. And I was like, well, this sounds like millions of dollars they didn't get paid. Yeah, that's correct. That's why they're looking for some help. And I was like, so we think, well, especially me, I talk to people like yourself and and you're on the cutting edge of things. And after a while, I think this is the way the world works. No, not so. There are... There are big, big companies that you would all recognize who are not getting paid because they can't show a POD. And by the way, my brother-in-law just retired from Ford Motor Company, had a great job there, very smart guy. And I mentioned that to him and he goes, oh, absolutely, it happens in automotive still. Now, automotive is a super sophisticated supply chain, but it's still happening there. So imagine you've got this long supply chain where I I bought minerals, I bought I bought steel, I got plastic, I get these suppliers, I created all these goods, I moved them all the way, transported all the way to the end, and the day I was supposed to get paid, I find out that I don't have a proof of delivery. Well, and you, you mentioned <laughs> the technology and how we're all in uh, the pillars, as we call them. Culture, service, tech, and trucks. There's many companies out there that might have a great culture. There's many that own trucks. There's many that have the the technology. But there's really, in our space, I don't think one company has tied all those pieces together. You know, I I say, do you want a one-trick pony or a four-trick pony? Because we're putting the pieces together to get it done. I've said this before. You either invest in trucks or you invest in tech. And you do get to certain companies like yourself, but usually they're huge companies, huge companies at a certain point go, I guess we can invest in both. But you do come, if you're a trucking company, usually you come to a point where, do I, do I want to develop millions of dollars worth of tech or do I want to go get a few more trucks, right? <laughs> but you guys have done it all. Congratulations on that. I love that you picked a niche. So let's wrap this bad boy up. So I want to get your final thoughts on this, Brian. And again, the topic is, is drayage just drayage? So I want to get your final thoughts on on the problem and the solution that you guys bring in. The problem being that so often drayage is not looked at as an integrated part of the supply chain. It's kind of a separate silo that gets ignored. Yeah, it was an afterthought. I'll just find any any trucker after it's been, uh, you know, customs cleared. I mean, that's just the way that it has been in the, in the past. And we think there's a better way. Yep, yep. So... What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and I'll put a link to your website and any other links you want to give me. And then I like to interview smart, interesting people like yourself. Who else should I interview on my podcast? Someone who is killing it like you. Well, somebody that's had some success in the marketplace and he's been uh, you know, a customer of ours and been promoted. His name is Jeff Piella and he's really- Where's you know, he making at? A difference. He's at Kuna Nagel. And, oh, uh, they've done all right. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's making a difference for for himself and his customers, and he likes to think outside of the box and, and provide solutions. And he's colorful too. Like, it'll be a fun discussion. I will definitely reach out and talk to him. He sounds like a great yeah. guy. You know, the 
The other thing, Joe, you know, you mentioned you're putting us on the LinkedIn and in the website, which is great. We do a weekly market update. Ooh. And in that weekly market update, we're giving you what's hot and what's not at all the ports and rail ramps. So if somebody's having a congestion issue, chassis shortages, so you're going to get, you know, less than a thousand words of typed print. And then you also get a link. And when you click on that link, you're going to see every port and rail ramp in the United States and Canada with all of their potential. Is there congestion? Yes or no. Is there chassis issues? Yes or no. What other issues may be there? So it's just a really good resource. If I call them multi-origin, multi-destination shippers, if you're headquartered in New York City and you've got 10 warehouses and you're in 10 different markets around the country, it's hard for you to keep your finger on the pulse. It, oh, uh, it really is. Our team, our team here does is we, we keep our finger on the pulse. For we, our I will definitely put a link in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. And by the way, I didn't ask this. We talked about all your trucks. You also have some warehouses, you said, right? Yes. In, in Denver, which is kind of an odd spot, but in Chicago, we've got cross dock facilities. We do have cross dock facilities in Kansas City, Houston coming soon. I don't know if I mentioned Savannah, LA. So we've got a pretty good footprint. And then through our logistics network, which is brokerage, which you know some people think is a dirty word in this market. I've got my buddy Drew at, at a company in Norfolk, and if I call Drew on Saturday morning at 6 a.m. and I need you to open the warehouse and load a truck, he's there. So, you know, we are very strategic in where we're picking our our facilities, you know, where we think they can be most beneficial to us and our customers. And if we don't need to reinvent the wheel, we're not going to reinvent the wheel. We'll put those resources somewhere else. Yeah. And so your warehouses, are they more or less for your own use or are you guys doing a lot of, um, do you do any like deliveries to stores out of those or? Uh, very few. We do some short-term projects. So when I say short-term projects, you know, project management, say you're building a big distribution facility and it's in Dallas, but the freight's coming into Houston. We'll pick up that freight in Houston, hold 10 to 100 containers on the dock, and then deliver that on demand when the engineers and construction people say, I need part A3 through A6 for the next step. Because you can't take all those containers to the, the job site in Dallas or else you'd be broke on demurrage fees. You'd have no place to store them. You know, it would be uh, an utter mess. So we help manage those projects like yeah, that that's, as well. Yeah, that's kind of that um, high-level project freight that is so often in construction. And it is has to be sometimes staged properly and kitted to some extent, sequenced sequenced deliveries. You can't just show up in New York City and say, hey, we're just going to drop all this stuff off and you can put it in a building. No, nope, it gets there in the order that they want it. So I love it. I love what you guys are doing. And I love that you just picked a lane and really dominated it. But also, I just love the idea of taking something that was neglected, which is drayage and and putting it in back into our supply chain where it belongs. And if if anybody doubts the importance of drayage, just remember back to COVID. We could not get those damn containers out. And God bless all the people who worked their asses off trying to get them out of the ports. We had we had containers stacked everywhere. And this is again, this is the foundation of our supply chains. It's the foundation of our lives are in these containers. Well, and we talk about the after fact. One of the things I was pounding the table on during COVID, do not use charter vessels. You're going to put yourself in jail. And so many people use charter vessels. Oh, explain that. I don't even understand that. So, so they would book a vessel for like a thousand containers from overseas. And they're like, well, I got space on the vessel. We're good. Well, they didn't have a plan for how they were going to get them drained. They didn't have a plan for how they were going to get them transloaded because there was no inland point intermodal service, meaning these smaller steamship lines were not allowing the containers to go to the the inland of the U.S. You have to have a deal with the port too, right? You have to have a deal with the port. That's why there was 100 vessels floating in Long Beach. They were bringing them over from China and they didn't even know what terminal they were contracted with. Yeah, so it seems like, yeah, once I get it to about a mile from L.A., the work's done, right? Yeah, they're like, just get it on the boat. We'll be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't work that way, guys. So what conferences will we see you guys at? Um, so I don't know if we have any coming up in the summer months. 
you know, we're we're on site with TPM, obviously being in containerized cargo. That was just in February, right? It was a, It's a big conference for us. We are part of the Council of Supply Chain Management, so you'll see us at some of those round, round tables. I'll see you at Manifest next year, right? You will definitely see us at Manifest. Lauren is working on uh, getting us there. We haven't done it before, but we've heard such great feedback from other attendees and uh and it coincides with the Super Bowl this year. So that's uh, right. Two birds, one stone. That's right. It's I think the Super Bowl is obviously on Sunday, and I think they were Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, one or the other. So yeah, well, it'll be an exciting time in Vegas. And by the way, I was at Manifest this year. It was great, and it's guys. There's a big difference. We all go to conferences, but Manifest is owned by a conference company. They they know what they're doing. <laughs> they do a lot of conferences, so they they kill it. So I will see you there. And um, again, I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you guys. And congrats. Oh, one last thing I didn't ask you. Yeah. How do you end up in Bozeman, Montana? Well, between before I started Portex, I wanted to move to Montana. I had a small fishing cabin here. My wife was like, no way are we living in this town of 800 people in Ennis. <laughs> so I flew out here to go fishing and skiing in April. And she's a jewelry designer. And she's always wanted her own boutique. Ah. So I found on Craigslist a store on Main Street in Bozeman. I gave them a month's deposit. And I told my wife, Dawn, Dawn Josephine, I, I told her, <laughs> you've got a month to decide. Do you want to go swing for the fences and, and live your dream? And after a month, she's like, yeah, let's go do it. So... Uh, we drove two vehicles to Bozeman, sold our house, sold all of our furniture, lived in a vacation rental until we bought a house, and that's how we ended up here. Yeah, congratulations. Well, I know a lot of people talk about living out there and uh, what beautiful area of the country. Yeah, especially during the pandemic, everyone's like, oh, my God, why don't I live in Montana? I live on the outskirts of the Detroit metro area, and we really didn't. I was different out here. Like we didn't have the concerns that you do in the tight urban areas. Like I don't bump into as many people out here. <laughs> so, but anyway, Brian, it was really great talking to you. Really great to meet you. Congrats on your success. All right. Thanks so much, Joe. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.